Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina, in what is officially the very first episode of season two. Now, I'm not going to change the numbering. This is going to be Fisk episode 62 because I don't think I can keep track if we sort it into seasons, but we are now officially into our second year. Last week, you'll remember, uh, we were a day before. We kicked things off May 1st, um, Loyalty Day of 2017, and we are now past our one-year birthday, uh, and we got a lot to talk about as part of it. So here's what we're going to do. In lieu of political talk, because there's been so much political crap, I haven't been able to really go through it all. Uh, As a tribute to our one year of broadcasting, I'm going to be shamelessly self-indulgent and talk to you about some statistics about the podcast. That's going to be the political section. Then we're going to get into our criminal justice news. Uh, Then we're going to get into our Law 140. We have two sponsors for this week's broadcast. Uh, Our show note sponsor is Judy Kane. Judy, if you are listening, thank you. Judy has been supporting us since November of last year. She's been around for a while. And in addition to being a loyal listener, uh, she's also one of the folks that talks to me on Twitter every now and again. So, Judy, thank you very much for your support. And the Law 140 topic is from one of our Law 140 lovers, Matthew Boyer, and we're going to be talking about the constitutionality of mandatory minimums. We all know they exist, but the question is, why are they allowed to exist? So that will be the topic in the back third of the podcast. There's also going to be a special bonus episode dropping this Thursday. Now, if you happen to be one of our Friends of the Fisk patrons on the Patreon page, you already have access to the uncut version since last week, Uh, but it is going to be a politics-only podcast between myself and my good friends from undergrad, Dave Fox and James Hankins. Uh, That's going to drop on Thursday, so keep an eye out for that. Now, with bonus pods, I don't typically announce that they're out because that way it gives me an eye on uh, our organic reach, if you will. I know how many people are subscribing because they get it automatically and how many people get it via word of mouth. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do that again, but that's why we call them subscriber-only bonus episodes because I just don't talk about them. So you're not probably going to see it unless you're actually subscribed to the podcast or listening to this particular episode. So we'll see. Uh, Also, as another podcast note, we got a shout-out from our local NPR affiliate, WUNC, uh, who actually borrowed some of our audio from episode 60, where we interviewed District Attorney Roger Eccles. So if you get this and you live in the area, primary day in North Carolina is this Tuesday, May 8th. If you live in Durham, I hope you will join me in voting to reelect Roger Eccles as the district attorney and voting for Clarence Burkhead for sheriff. Uh, I voted in my very first ever Democratic primary uh, last week or the week before, whenever it was. It was it was two Thursdays ago. Uh, and voted for those folks. I have been a Republican since before I could vote. I then became unaffiliated after our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, was elected president. And the past two years I've been unaffiliated. This became my very first Democrat primary uh, because in North Carolina we have what are called open primaries. So Republicans can only vote for Republicans. Democrats can only vote for Democrats. But if you're unaffiliated like I am, you get to pick which one you want. And because I'm so deeply... uh, 
uh, involved, if you will, with the criminal justice system here in Durham. Uh, I want a good district attorney and a good sheriff. So I voted for Roger Eccles and Clarence Burkhead, and I hope you all will do the same. All right, before we jump into the stuff, if you have not already done so, please join us uh, online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskemall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment, you can do so at our website, Fiskemall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, the people that help keep this show on the air, uh, make sure that I can afford the media hosting and to pay Mike the sound guy, you can do that via Patreon at patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. All right, now this next segment is completely self-indulgent. I realize that, and I apologize for it, but we've been at it for a year, and I'm a data junkie, so I figured that I would provide some statistics about the podcast over the past year. We have had 63 episodes. If you count all of these ones, as well as episode zero, which was our, our teaser uh, came out to four minutes and 20 seconds long, by the way. No one believes me, but that was totally accidental. It really was. Uh, and then we have six episodes that are Patreon exclusives. So that does not include the interview with Dave and James, because all of you are going to get that eventually. That is six separate episodes that only patrons can get access to. Out of those 63 episodes, 39 different Law 140 topics have been covered. So we've covered 39 different areas of the law, giving you a primer on how the American justice system works. And that's in addition to other snippets of the law that get tucked in to like the what the fist questions. I didn't count those. Uh, and then some of the political theory talk, like when we had a discussion about the Overton window, I didn't count that either. So 39 segments on the law plus extra stuff. Now our top three most listened to episodes, uh, all of them had guests. So the number one episode has been episode 32, uh, the Balkanization of America is Real. That was our very first conversation with Dave and James. The second most popular one is episode 19. That was juror number five, where Assistant District Attorney Jeff Neiman helped walk us through how juries work in North Carolina. And then the third most listened to episode was our very first guest, Harold Respass, in episode 10, Emoluments and Controversies in Standing Oh My. Our least listened to episode was on Christmas Day, uh, episode 43, What the Fisk, volume 5. We only had a 1,000 people tune in on that one. Uh, at the high end with Dave and James, we had 2007. So obviously none of you listen to podcasts on Christmas. I get it. It's fine. My feelings aren't hurt. I just wanted to make sure that I had something out every single Monday so that y'all knew something was coming. Uh, in terms of where y'all are listening, 65.6% of all of our listeners are on some form of iOS device, whether that's an iPhone or an iPad or a Mac. 15.5% uh, of you are on Android. Six of you are on something that's multi-platform, so like a Java-based listener. Uh, and then 5.6 of you are on Windows, and then everyone else is on a mishmash of stuff. We even have one subscriber uh, who listens to us on BlackBerry OS. I didn't know BlackBerry was still a thing. The top podcast apps to listen to us on, uh, something from Apple, is for 54.8 of you. 6.6% uh, of you listen to Overcast. 6.1% of you listen to Pocket Casts. And then there's like 30-something percent that listen to like a bazillion different podcast listeners. Now, in terms of total downloads 
for all of our regular non-Patreon episodes. Uh, as of the time that I've printed out this outline, there might be some more since then, but we've had 124,659 downloads of our episodes, which if you average that out, it's about 2,000-ish per episode, which is pretty cool. Uh, we have listeners in all 50 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. Uh, California is our number one now. I mentioned that a couple weeks back. They've got 183 subscribers. North Carolina is number two at 172. We have 129 subscribers in Texas. That's third. We have 85 subscribers in New York. And then number five is Georgia with 83. The really crazy part is that we have listeners in 99 countries, which is so weird to me because, one, it's – I don't know. Like I've never felt compelled to learn about another country's legal system. Like I, le- I like learning about other countries. But learning about other countries' legal systems just seems so in the weeds that I, I don't know that I would ever do that. Um, but then some of them are like spots where I just would not expect anyone to care. You know what I mean? So our top five after the United States, uh, the United Kingdom is number one, then Canada, then Australia, then Japan, then Germany. But we also have listeners in the Russian Federation. Uh, we have a subscriber in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Out of the 13 African countries where people listen to us, we are most popular in Kenya. Uh, we have several people listening to us in the Cayman Islands. I don't know if that's folks that are on vacation or if they actually live there. Uh, and we have at least one subscriber in Vanuatu, which the only reason why I know where that place is is because it was a season of Survivor many years ago. Uh, they're actually found out one of their islands, Ambe Island, is being evacuated because of a volcano just a couple days ago. Uh, but someone on Vanuatu listens to us regularly. And I just, what I think that's really cool. But it's also very strange. So I'm, I'm flattered having a global media empire. Thank you everywhere for those of you that are tuning in. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do in season two. It's just, you got to keep in mind. So I've spent the overwhelming majority of my life, not particularly uh, popular. And I use the, I'm putting popular in air quotes, you know what I mean? Like I had friends, but did not have that many throughout elementary school, middle school, high school, my first time at college. Uh, Had several nerdy friends when I got into student government. You know, I I had a group of maybe uh, 12 to 14 people that I was like super tight with and then a broader network of a few dozen that I was friendly with. But all of us were student government geeks, you know, and then after law school, graduated, running your own law firm is very lonely. So I went from the friends that I had to only like maybe a half dozen to a dozen people that I talked with regularly Um, and then randomly went viral on Twitter back in 2016, which is how I came to interact with a lot of you. And to know that there's, you know, roughly 1,500 people, give or take, that every Monday y'all actually look forward to listening to the podcast, uh, it's awesome. It totally blows my mind. I'm incredibly humbled. I'm gratified by it. Uh, So thank you to all of you. All right, let's get into the criminal justice stuff because there's a lot. This is another 20-something page outline. uh, In I don't have anything for the courts, but in general research news, we've got two pieces in the Washington Post. The first one, they've looked at census data and some other sources of stuff. And what they found is that the country is more integrated overall in terms of where people live. uh, But segregation is still super entrenched and very stark 
and a lot of cities. Uh, so they've got this very fancy interactive page. I'm going to give you a link to it in the show notes. Uh, but from the story that accompanies it, it says, quote, since 1990, more than 90% of U.S. metro areas have seen a decline in racial stratification, signaling a trend toward a more integrated America. Yet while areas like Houston and Atlanta have undergone rapid demographic changes, cities like Detroit and Chicago still have large areas dominated by a single racial group. Some 50 years ago, policies like the Fair Housing Act and the Voting Rights Act were enacted to increase integration, promote equity, combat discrimination, and dismantle the lingering legacy of Jim Crow laws. But a Washington Post analysis shows that some cities remain deeply segregated, even as the country itself becomes more diverse. To explore these national changes, the Post analyzed census data from 1990, 2000, 2010, and the latest estimates from the 2016 five-year American Community Survey. Using that data, we generated detailed maps of the United States using six race categories, Black, White, Hispanic, Asian-slash-Pacific Islander, Native American, and multi-race or other for those years where that classification was available. And they put all this into this thing where you got two different sets of maps. One is the map of the actual racial groups. So one particular dot on the map represents white people. A diff one represents, you know, black people. And based on the size of the dots is how many people it represents. And you can zoom out, zoom in. And it just gives you this really nifty multicolor map where you can check, for example, Washington, D.C., and you can see, you know, for example, the area just east of the Anacostia River is predominantly black. On the other side, it's predominantly white. Uh, there's spots of it where you see large Asian communities. And then they also have something called the diversity index where, well, what they use is you're basically looking at entropy, kind of the spatial distribution of race in any given census tract. Uh, so you can see on a separate color scale uh, how integrated or how segregated the particular area is. And the cool part about it is that they've overlaid all of this on Google Maps. So you can actually enter your address and see how your area looks. So it's actually pretty cool because I looked up my neighborhood and it, it's very diverse because I live in Durham. So it's it's a very diverse city. But even within that, you can see parts of the city that are less diverse than others. And it's different neighborhoods that I went to when I was running for office. You know, like North Durham, for example, is a lot of white folks. Uh, Southeast Durham is not. So it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I urge you to check it out. Uh, also in the Washington Post, they have a story where they're claiming – that, uh, well, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a way that conveys what they're claiming accurately. Basically, they're arguing that deadly police shootings of unarmed people are down, which is factually accurate. But the story makes it seem like it's a bigger deal than it actually is. And I'll explain why in a minute. But from the story, it says, quote, the number of deadly police shootings of unarmed people has generally declined since 2015, even as the tally of fatal shootings by law enforcement is on pace to hit nearly 1,000 for the fourth year in a row, according to data gathered by the Washington Post. Fatal shootings of unarmed black men, such as the high-profile case in March of Stephon Clark in Sacramento, are among the kinds of killings that have fallen. Criminologists said the downturn in the number of cases and their own analysis of the data indicate that evidence of racial bias by police who shoot and kill unarmed blacks has also declined, but not disappeared. Now, they make a very lengthy news article about this data, but my problem with it is that they're not really looking big picture. So they only look at killings, not shootings or 
police brutality in general. They're only looking at people who actually die. Out of those people who actually die, they're only looking at people who are totally unarmed as opposed to those who are armed with knives or rocks or anything that's not a gun, something that may merit less than lethal force. And then out of those only killings of only totally unarmed people, they're only looking at them for a four-month time span from January 1st through April 30th. They're not looking at a rolling average or, you know, because what I would say is, you know, take a rolling year-long period if you're going to do stuff like that. Uh, so in the results, what you get is that there have been 18 people totally unarmed killed by police so far this year compared to 26 totally unarmed killed by police from January 1st to April 30th of last year. So that's an eight death difference. Now that's meaningful. I mean, those eight people who theoretically would have been killed are still alive, but that's too small of a difference in too small of a data set over too small of a time period to really indicate whether anything substantive is changing. It's basically what you would call statistical noise. So let's applaud the fact that it's happened. Yay. But unless it continues throughout the course of this year, I'm not impressed. And frankly, I'm skeptical it's going to be that way because if you look at the total number of people who have been killed by law enforcement so far, uh, we use, for example, killedbypolice.net. encourage you to check that site out. What you're going to find is that police have been killing far more people so far this year than they have in years past. So both of those are out of the Washington Post. We'll give you links to both of them. The next story is a research study that I read through that I guess I missed in January because I thought I had already covered it and someone sent it to me and I reread it and I found out that we did cover a similar study in January, but it was a different one looking at different stuff, had similar results, but on a different basis. And essentially data confirms that police engage in retaliatory violence whenever they're criticized. So if you go back to episode 46, we talked about the increase in police brutality after they are protested. Well, this one looks at criticisms on social media. The study is titled Primed for Death, Law Enforcement, Citizen Homicides, Social Media, and Retaliatory Violence. And from the abstract, it says, quote, We examine whether retaliatory violence exists between law enforcement and citizens while controlling for any social media contagion effect related to prior fatal encounters. Analyzed using a trivariate dynamic structural vector autoregressive model. Try saying that three times fast. Uh, daily time series data over a 21-month period captured the frequencies of police killed in the line of duty, police deadly use of force incidents against civilians, and social media coverage. The results support a significant retaliatory violence effect against minorities by police. Yet there is no evidence of retaliatory violence against law enforcement officers by those minorities. Also, social media coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement increases the risk of fatal victimization to both law enforcement officers and minorities. Possible explanations for these results are based in rational choice and terror management theories. And if you go through the study, it, it's very study-esque, you know, so there's a lot of math involved and a bunch of other things. Uh, but one of the key conclusions is, quote, using a structural vector autoregression framework, we analyzed daily data between January 1st of 2015 through September 30th, 2016, 
modeling the contemporaneous cyclical relationship between the number of law enforcement officers shot to death in the United States, the number of citizens shot and killed by law enforcement in the United States, and the number of tweets that included hashtag Black Lives Matter or the term Black Lives Matter. Two models were run, separating citizens killed into minorities and white non-Hispanics. See the supporting information section for additional model information. Our results provide evidence of a retaliatory, violent relationship between law enforcement and citizens. Unexpected shocks to the number of law enforcement officers killed are associated with more minorities killed and fewer whites killed on the same day. In addition, our models found that unexpected increases in citizen deaths increased the number of law enforcement officers killed if the citizens were white non-Hispanics and decreased the number of law enforcement officers killed if the citizens were minorities. These relationships held regardless of how much social media attention was focused on the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot more to go from there, but the gist of it is when the news coverage turns out that an officer has been killed in the line of duty, other officers in other jurisdictions are more inclined to go gunslinging, killing people of color. Uh, So we'll give you that study so you can read through it for yourself. Uh, In state-by-state criminal justice fuckery news, we will start... In California, where we got one, two, three, four stories. In Buena Park, the first rule of Fisk, an off-duty police officer pulled his gun on a guy that he suspected was stealing a roll of Mentos, even though the guy had already paid for them. And it's all on the security camera from the shop. From the story, it says, quote, One minute, Jose Ariola was buying a pack of Mentos at an Orange County service station. The next minute, he was at the business end of a gun drawn by an off-duty Buena Park police officer who thought Ariola had stolen the $1.19 roll of mints. Ariola said he and his wife Jacqueline were driving to a club about 10 p.m. on Friday when they pulled into a Chevron station in Buena Park to use the ATM. Jacqueline Ariola told her husband to buy her cementos while he was inside. Ariola can be seen in a store security video placing the candy on the counter and handing the clerk a $20 bill from the 60 he got out of the ATM. While he's waiting for his change, Ariola puts the candy in his pocket. Immediately, a man in black shorts standing behind him in line pulls a gun from the pocket of his black hoodie, announces he is a police officer, and tells Ariola to put the Mentos back on the counter. Ariola throws his hands up and protests that he paid for the mints. The officer can be heard telling Ariola to take his change and leave, minus the Mentos. What the fuck would he have change for if he wasn't paying for something? That that doesn't get asked in the article. Uh, Finally, the officer asks the cashier if Ariola paid for the mints. Yes, says the cashier. Subquote, are you sure? The officer asks. Again, the cashier says yes. And then the officer says, subquote, my apologies. Buena Park Sergeant Mike Lovechick declined to comment on the incident, saying an internal investigation is underway. Let's assume for the sake of argument the guy was stealing the Mentos. Let's assume he was. Why the fuck would you pull your gun? You can stop him without having to pull a firearm, especially if you're off-duty just hanging out in the fucking gas station. That's problem one. Problem two is why the fuck would he be eating change if he wasn't buying something? It's stupid. So that is the first story to kick off this episode if it gives you an idea of the volume of dumb shit we're going to be dealing with. Uh, Out of Rialto, California, you can add vacationing well black to the list of offenses that will get you surrounded by police. Uh, So there's there's some media coverage on this, but it starts on Instagram with a video. So I'm going to read you the Instagram caption. Uh, What it says is, quote, during our time in California, we have been staying at an Airbnb. 
The 30th was our second morning, and about 11 a.m., we checked out. The four of us packed our bags, locked up the house, and left. As you can see, three of us were black. About 10 seconds later, we were surrounded by seven cop cars. The officers came out of their cars, demanding us to put our hands in the air. They informed us that there was also a helicopter tracking us. They locked down the neighborhood and had us standing in the street. Why? A neighbor across the street saw three black people packing luggage into their car and assumed we were stealing from the house. She then called the police. In the news coverage, you find out the reason the neighbor called police is because apparently she waved at these women and the women didn't wave back. So you have to assume, did the women actually see her wave? That's point one. But point two is, is it required for you to wave back to avoid police interaction? Uh, If you're black in California, apparently. Uh, In Salinas, a reserve police officer accidentally fired his gun in a high school public safety class. From that story, it says, quote, a teacher accidentally fired a gun during a class about public safety in a California classroom, police say. No one was hurt at Seaside High School when teacher Dennis Alexander inadvertently fired one shot off at 1.20 p.m. Police did not specify what type of gun was used. A call seeking comment was not immediately returned. Alexander had been teaching about public safety awareness. He also serves as a reserve police officer for the San City Police and, get this, is a Seaside City Councilman. I don't know how guns go off accidentally. I really don't. I use one regularly and never had it happen. Had a gun jam before. No, that happens, but don't know how they go off accidentally. You shouldn't have a fucking round in the chamber. And if you have rounds in the magazine, you shouldn't be cocking the gun unless you're planning to use it. So you're actually going to have three different stories of this exact same thing happening. The third rule of Fisk was in full effect this week. Uh, in San Joaquin County, I don't know how to pronounce it. I've screwed it up before. Uh, but NPR takes a look at the sheriff coroner positions in California. So they're in 49 of the 58 counties where your coroner is the sheriff as well. And you'll remember, if you listen to episode 41, we talked about Dr. Bennett Amalu, who was the chief forensic pathologist. He was the guy that, and you're going to have to... Google it. I can't remember the name of the movie. The one that had Will Smith where they're talking about um, NFL concussions. I I don't remember, man. I I didn't actually see it. It was some kind of... I remember Will Smith was in it. Was it concussion? Was that the name of it? I don't think that's right. All right. Well, I'll take your word for it. Whatever it is, it's the movie about NFL concussions that Will Smith is in. And he's playing the character of this uh, Amalu guy. Well, Amalu resigned because back in episode 41, we talked about it. He had ruled that a death was a homicide and the sheriff overruled it because the guy who died had been killed by law enforcement. So NPR takes a look at this story and uh, it says, among other things, they cover the Amalu um, resignation and they ask the sheriff as to whether or not the sheriff did anything inappropriate. And what the sheriff says is, quote, I believe I did what I was supposed to do under the law, okay? Both that and my interpretation as far as what my duty is as the coroner. Uh, The story continues, in California, those duties are pretty clear. In 49 out of 58 of California's counties, the coroner is also an elected sheriff. And even if a forensic pathologist says someone was beaten to death, say a homicide, the sheriff-coroner can call it an accident. Critics say that's an inherent conflict of interest, especially when someone dies at the hands of law enforcement. A recent audit of the San Joaquin County Coroner's Office found at least four deaths in just 2016 that involved law enforcement where the sheriff overruled the findings of county pathologists. Basically, they're covering shit up. 
Uh, so that's out of California and Florida. We have one of two separate cases that were the inspiration for this week's uh, episode title, FIFA-style policing, where a Miami PD officer is caught on video, first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded, uh, takes a running start and kicks an unarmed, handcuffed black man in the head for sport. The guy's laying face down on the ground with an officer behind him, and the dude just runs up and kicks him in the head like it's a fucking soccer ball. Uh, from the story in the Miami New Times, it says, quote, Earlier today, the city of Miami Police Department issued an ominous statement. Chief Jorge Kalina said he'd received a video of an officer clearly violating departmental policy. That cop had been relieved of duty, he reported, adding the department had sent the clip to the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. Now the video has surfaced. It shows a Miami police officer taking a running start and then kicking a defenseless handcuffed suspect in the head. A police department spokesperson confirmed this was the video in question. Just before 5 p.m., Miami PD named the officer as Mario Figueroa, an officer who's been on the force for two years. He is suspended with pay. That's paid vacation, folks. Uh, pending an internal investigation, Miami PD has so far declined to release any more information about his past internal affairs record or current salary and instructed the Miami New Times to file a records request if they wanted more information. The woman who posted the video, Lisa Harrell, wrote online that the officer was suspended after someone sent the clip to Miami PD. Harrell told the New Times that the incident occurred around 9.40 a.m. in the morning at the Colmer Place apartment complex in Overtown, Miami's historically black neighborhood. The area's residents have complained for decades about overzealous and often brutal police tactics. The officers in the video are all either white or Hispanic, while the victim is a black man. And I got news for you. This is the type of stuff that happened regularly for years and no one believed it until we had video. And when the videos are out, it's fucking worse than you would think. Uh, so that's out of Florida in Kansas. We've got two stories in Kansas the week. First is Kansas City. Uh, you might remember the racist firefighter Terrence Jeremy Skeen in episode 54. Uh, he's the one who called a three-year-old boy the N-word and then spit on him. That guy's been reinstated. He's back on the job. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Remember that Kansas City firefighter charged with spitting on a three-year-old in an Overland Park Hooters and calling that child the N-word? He's already gotten his job back, his lawyer says, ahead of his trial next month for battery, assault, and disorderly conduct. And according to the child's family, what happened that night was even worse than we knew from the initial story. And it's a very long piece recounting discussions from multiple witnesses. And what you find out is that not only did the firefighter spit on the kid, call him the N-word. He called the kid's parents the N-word, threatened to shoot them. And when all of this was going on, the manager of the restaurant called the police to have the black folks kicked out, saying that they were causing a disturbance as opposed to the firefighter. Basically, there was an 18-year-old in the family who was celebrating his 18th birthday, and he wanted to go to Hooters. That's how they ended up there. They had made reservations, had a bunch of family members show up, and everything got derailed by this guy. They actually never got to touch the birthday cake, which was left behind, because they thought he was going to kill him. Uh, so we'll give you that story. It's a long read. It's disappointing, but it's Kansas for you. Uh, out of Olaf, Kansas, body cam footage has been released in the extrajudicial summary execution of Sierra Howard, and it confirms that the police were told not to arrest the mentally ill woman at that point because it wasn't worth the risk. 
And if you listen to the commentary back and forth, it, it's it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, the law officers who shot and killed Sierra Howard in the laundry room of an Oleth house last August had been warned by their own SWAT teams going into the house to arrest the mentally distressed and likely armed 26 year old on an outstanding warrant was not worth the risk. Body camera footage obtained by the star shows that the Oleth police and Johnson County Sheriff's deputies who staged around the house in a three hour siege were fully briefed on the situation. They knew that Howard's troubled history was littered with only minor nonviolent offenses marked by addiction and mental illness. They knew her warrant was for walking away from the county's adult residential center, where she'd been required to report after her latest conviction. They knew she was acting irrationally. And they knew she had access to her boyfriend's 45 caliber handgun. Subquote, it's not worth getting into a shootout and hurting an officer or hurting her over the type of warrants that we have. A commander on the scene was heard saying on camera, relaying the word from Olath and Johnson County that neither of their SWAT teams wanted to come and go in the house. Subquote, well, what are we going to do? A frustrated Johnson County deputy asked, bail on it. Subquote, the sheriff is not on board with it, a different deputy said. That's why the county tactical team was not coming. The Olath sergeant reported the same thing from his command. They had, subquote, unofficial orders that were not going in. They were going to give it a little bit and see what happens. The deputy from earlier says, subquote, we know she's in there. She's got warrants, felony warrants, and we're going to walk away. Something in my head is not computing with this. We've got fucking 15 of us here. That word is going to get out if we walk away amongst all of them. They're going to fucking barricade up with a weapon, and we're going to keep walking away. Uh, so basically, you find out that 10 people went in. They had a ballistic shield, a German shepherd. They found this woman in the laundry room with a gun, and they shot her dead. So that is your people protecting and serving the fuck out of you in Kansas. In Kentucky, in Bullitt County, a rape victim came to the local police department to report that she had been raped. Uh, so an officer took her to a, a hotel and raped her himself. From the story, it says, quote, court records are revealing new details about the criminal case against a Hillview police detective. John Nissen was indicted for theft by deception, tampering with a witness and official misconduct. A grand jury indicted him earlier this week. Bullitt County Commonwealth's attorney Shelley Alvey told WLKY that the indictment stems from an alleged rape that was reported to Hillview Police in September 2017. The victim claimed she was assaulted by an officer from another Bullitt County department. The complaint was from an alleged rape victim and they were interviewing her, Alvey said. Nissen agreed to take her home. And the allegation is that when he left the police department, he actually drove her to the home of the alleged perpetrator, which, again, was another Bullitt County cop. After that, Alvey said Nissen took the victim to a hotel where they had sex. And I'm putting that in air quotes because it was fucking rape. You can't have sex with someone in your custody. Uh, Nissen had his police powers suspended. He is, however, on paid leave. He will be arraigned May 14th. Uh, well, I guess I have a note here that Kentucky does not have a law prohibiting police from having sex with someone in their custody. So maybe it's legal there. I don't know. Um, yeah. So that's Kentucky. Rape victims get raped by the police, not once, but twice. In Massachusetts, out of Chicopee, speaking of sex crimes, another Chicopee police officer 
has been charged. This one faces three counts of indecent assault and battery after an incident in a Holyoke bar. Officer Jacek Wannett was arraigned Tuesday in Holyoke District Court. He was released under the requirements he stay away from the victim and from Pick's place in Holyoke, remain alcohol-free, and surrender any firearms, according to court records. The charges stem from an incident March 11th at Pick's place. Little information about the accusation was available because Judge Maureen Walsh agreed to impound for 30 days the complaint filed by the police. The request was made by a prosecutor to protect the victim, court records say. After the 30 days, the records will become public, but the name of the victim will be redacted. Police Chief William R. Jeb has placed Wannett on paid administrative duty. It's paid vacation while the case is being investigated. Now, this is the same department that we just talked about. Corey Fournier, just a couple weeks ago, has been indicted for raping someone when he was on National Guard uh, training. Uh, so something, something's going on in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Out of Michigan, in Detroit, you have a black woman who pulled a firearm to protect her two-year-old daughter from a crazy person that was using their car as a weapon, but it ended up being the mother who got convicted and will be giving birth in prison because the crime carried a two-year mandatory minimum prison sentence. So there's an extensive write-up in Reason Magazine on this case, which is just so fucking bizarre. Uh, some there's more to it than what I'm going to give you, but I'm going to give you an extended quote uh, from the story. It says, quote, Suatu Salama Ra is a 26 year old black mother who watched in horror as an angry assailant, a neighbor with whom Ra had a dispute, deliberately crashed her vehicle into Ra's car while Ra's two year old daughter was playing inside. Ra removed her unloaded, legally purchased handgun from the glove box and brandished it, scaring the neighbor off. The assailant, Chanel Harvey, was never charged. Ra was arrested for felonious assault. She is now serving a mandatory two-year sentence, even though Michigan is a stand-your-ground state, and Ra was clearly defending her family on her own property. Ra's pregnant, and she is expected to give birth in prison. Uh, to give you some background on the facts of the case, it says, According to Ra's attorney, Victoria Burton-Harris, Ra and Harvey's nieces both attended school together. The two girls had a disagreement. Ra contends that Harvey's niece beat up Ra's niece at school. On that basis, Ra decided that Harvey's niece wasn't welcome at the Ra household anymore, which seems like a pretty minor thing, you know. Uh, but apparently Harvey brought her own kid over to stay the night anyway without checking with anyone in Ra's family or checking with the niece. Uh, it says, quote, Sawatu called her sister herself and found out from her sister that there was no permission given for this kid to be at the family home that day visiting. And therefore, Sawatu informed the young lady that she needed to call her mother to come and pick her back up. Uh, and so the mother arrived after about 10 minutes to pick up the child. She was very upset, irate even. She pulled up to Ra's family home. She started yelling, using profanity. She was very angry. She started demanding answers. Why can't my child be here? She testified at trial that she thought she had a right to be on the Ra property and to demand answers as to why her child was not welcome. So that's the factual background. Well, Harvey refused to leave and then eventually drove her car into Ra's which was parked on the street with Ra's two-year-old daughter still inside of it. At that point, Ra feared for her child's safety and also the safety of her own mother who was sitting on the front porch. Harvey continued to move her car forward and backward in an aggressive manner. Finally, Ra retrieved her handgun and brandished it at Harvey. Harvey then used her cell phone to take a picture of Ra holding the gun and raced off to the police station where she filed a police report. Now, it's worth noting, in this initial police report, uh, they never mentioned 
the hitting the car that was found out after the fact. Well, Ra also filed a police report, but under Detroit policy, Detroit police consider the first person to file a report to be the victim in a dispute all the time with no exceptions. The Detroit Police Department has not responded to Reason Magazine's request for comment, but, quote, according to the Detroit Metro Times, multiple police detectives confirmed that this policy exists and was testified to at trial. Uh, well, it turns out at the trial, Raw didn't get a fair trial there either because of the snow. In Reason, it says, quote, the jury was told the trial would likely only last two days, but it didn't begin deliberations until midway through Thursday, the fourth day. The forecast called for a blizzard on Friday, and the judge told the jury that it would return to court regardless of the weather if it didn't arrive at a decision. When the jury began deliberations with the snowstorm looming, it could be heard hotly debating the case from the jury room. Still, it quickly came to a decision. Guilty on one charge of felonious assault against Harvey, acquittal on a second felonious assault charge against Harvey's daughter, and guilty on the felony firearm possession charge. This decision obviously makes no sense. How could a jury conclude that Ra's self-defense explanation was sufficient to dismiss the charge of assaulting Harvey's daughter, but insufficient to dismiss the charge of assaulting Harvey herself? A jury looking forward to a three-day weekend was apparently disinclined to consider this contradiction. Michigan's mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines require a two-year sentence, which means that Raw will have to give birth in jail. Her attorneys asked the court to delay her sentence until after the pregnancy was over, but this request was denied. Now, it's worth noting that the National Rifle Association, which had its recent conference in Texas, uh, has been totally fucking silent about this case because, of course, Raw is black, and the NRA only believes in using black people for the purpose of having tokens around. They don't actually believe the Second Amendment applies to blacks. Uh, out of Fowlerville, Michigan, an unidentified police officer accidentally, putting that in air quotes, fired his gun at a high school wrestling match. From the story, it says, quote, an off-duty Flint police officer accidentally discharged his off-duty firearm while watching a wrestling meet in Fowlerville on Saturday. The incident happened around 12.40 p.m. at Fowlerville High School while the off-duty officer was standing on the gym floor. The bullet was fired into the gym floor, and there were no injuries from the gunshot, although one person was treated for a twisted ankle. I don't know why you would have a gun as you're off-duty watching a wrestling match. I also don't know how it goes off accidentally. Uh, out of New Jersey, in Kenilworth, this is not a police story, but it's sufficiently weird that I felt like including it. Uh, you know, it said that education can be a shitty job, but apparently one superintendent decided to take that literally. From the story, it says, quote, the Kenilworth school superintendent charged Monday with defecating in public. Yes, he's taking shits in public, uh, was caught in the act at the Homedale High School football field and track after surveillance was set up due to human feces being found, subquote, on a daily basis, police said. Thomas Tra Tremaglini, I'm probably screwing that up, Tremaglini, I don't really do Italian names, I'm assuming that's Italian. Uh, he lives about three miles from the high school in Aberdeen, and he was running at the track on the athletic fields at 5.50 a.m., uh, track coaches and staff at the high school told the district's resource officer that they keep finding human feces on or near the football field and track daily. School employees then began monitoring the area, and on Monday, police arrested Tramaglini at 550. 
Tremaglini has taken a paid leave of absence, that's paid vacation, uh, from his $147,504 a year job. Like, why the fuck would you do something so stupid when you're getting paid that much? That's an insane amount of money. Uh, leave can only be unpaid if a person is indicted or faces a tenure charge, according to the district, citing state law. So he's going to be on paid vacation for a while for constantly shitting on the football field. Like, that's just so weird to me. Is there not a bathroom nearby? What do you use for toilet paper? Uh, it's just it, uh, out of North Carolina. We got a couple stories here, both involving scumbag attorneys. Uh, first, we have the Pitt County assistant district attorney who's had his law license suspended for lying to the court. From the story, it says, quote, a superior court judge has suspended Pitt County assistant district attorney Philip Ensminger's license to practice law for two years. Side note, he is not a North Carolina Central University School of Law graduate. Uh, story continues, quote, Superior Court Judge Marvin Blunt issued the ruling on Monday. It stemmed from a fall 2017 case in which Blunt found Ensminger had violated ethical standards and lied to the court. In September 2017, Ensminger was tasked with prosecuting the State versus Haley Aguilar case involving a DWI charge. Ensminger failed to notify the court and the defendant who had flown in from Hawaii for the trial that the state's main witness, who administered the breathalyzer test, would be unable to attend the hearing. When Judge Jeffrey Foster questioned why the court and defendant weren't made aware of this, Ensminger told them he had just found out, which later was found out to be a lie. This is not in the article, but in a separate article, it was found out to be a lie because of text messages where the witness for the state says, hey, what time do I have to be in court? And Ensminger says, don't bother to come in. I want to get this case away from this particular judge. And they assumed that because he didn't show up, the case would be continued. Uh, Ensminger asked for a continuance in the trial, which was denied by the judge. According to court records, Ensminger then completed, signed, and filed a dismissal. In the explanation for why it was dismissed, Ensminger wrote, subquote, Oddly enough, the judge indicated the DWI case should have been set up further in the calendar because the defendant was from Hawaii. All defendants simply need to move out of the state after being charged with a crime if that is the case. Uh, Ensminger continued on to write that, subquote, he could have proved all of the elements, but a superior court judge denied the motion to continue for lack of an analyst to show the point one two uh, blood alcohol content. So basically the guy lies to the court and then writes a dismissal where he's being pissy about the judge. Now here's the part that I'm sure is going to shock you. He teaches at East Carolina University in their criminal justice department that future cops attend to learn how criminal justice works. Uh, and in addition to that, the district attorney who hired him and refused to fire him, Kimberly Robb, is running for the state legislature as a Republican. So there's some crazy shit going on in Pitt County, North Carolina. Uh, out of Raleigh, a scumbag lawyer from Florida is under investigation for how he treated two North Carolina exonerees. From the story, it says, quote, the North Carolina State Bar is investigating a Florida lawyer for his treatment of two mentally disabled clients who spent 31 years in prison before being declared innocent. Henry McCollum and his half-brother, Leon Brown, were exonerated in 2014 after serving decades in prison for the no notorious rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl. They both received $750,000 from the state in compensation. After they were freed, lawyer Patrick Maguero pocketed a third of each award, despite having done virtually no work on the exonerations or the pardons the men received. He then approved loans at 42% interest for the brothers, 
and a $20,000 payment each to two women, self-described advocates for the brothers who brought Maguero the case. McCollum went broke and then began borrowing more money at 39% with the lawyer's approval. The Marshall Project detailed the brothers' plight in a story in the New York Times. And there's a link to that within the link that I'm going to give you in the show notes. This is just, this is such scummy. I like, I, I know why people hate lawyers. This is an example of why people hate lawyers. Now, there is an interesting tidbit to this that's completely unrelated from the lawyer misconduct. Uh, most law schools now teach the case Callens versus Collins, where Justice Blackman dissents from a denial of certiorari, and he writes that he believes the death penalty is unconstitutional. And then Scalia just fucking excoriates him in response. And from Scalia's response, he says, quote, Justice Blackman begins his statement by describing with poignancy the death of a convicted murderer by lethal injection. He chooses, as the case in which to make that statement, one of the less brutal of the murders that regularly come before us. The murder of a man ripped by a bullet suddenly and unexpectedly, with no opportunity to prepare himself and his affairs, and left to bleed to death on the floor of a tavern. The death by injection, which Justice Blackman describes, looks pretty desirable next to that. It looks even better next to some of the other cases currently before us, which Justice Blackman did not select as the vehicle for his announcement that the death penalty is always unconstitutional. For example, the case of the 11-year-old girl raped by four men and then killed by stuffing her panties down her throat. See McCollum versus North Carolina, now pending before the court. How enviable a quiet death by lethal injection compared with that. If the people conclude that such more brutal deaths may be deterred by capital punishment, indeed, if they merely conclude that justice requires such brutal deaths to be avenged by capital punishment, the creation of false, untextual, and unhistorical contradictions within the court's Eighth Amendment jurisprudence should not prevent them. So he goes on this long rant, slams Justice Blackman, except McCollum didn't do it. Him and his brother were both innocent. They were exonerated by DNA. What happened is both brothers are mentally retarded and didn't know what was going on. Investigators put together a confession for them to sign and they signed it. So this entire case is fucked up from start to finish. And then you have this shithead lawyer from Florida fucking it up even more. It's just a mess. Uh, one more story in North Carolina out of Wendell. A high school kid was getting beaten up by other high school kids. So one of his friends intervened. And the friend that intervened ended up being the one suspended and criminally prosecuted, even though all of it is on video. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Austin St. John was suspended from Corinth Holders High School. The sophomore told ABC 11 that it happened after other students accused his friend Griffin of snitching to a teacher. He said several students gathered around their lunch table and started hitting Griffin. That's when he stepped in to defend his friend, and it was all caught on video. And what you see is he basically runs up punches a dude square in the face and then everyone's away because bullies like operating in groups and they like not being challenged when you challenge them they usually back down uh, well it turns out he was criminally charged in johnston county uh, and he was suspended for five days it's incredibly stupid uh, out of ohio franklin township the third rule of fisk there are no new stories only new names and jurisdictions this is the second case inspiring our podcast title fifa style policing uh, where a police officer was caught on video. So actually both both the first and third rule of Fisk in this case, uh, caught on video kicking a guy in the head for sport, even though the guy is handcuffed on the ground. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, an 18-year-old Columbus man who police say was speeding through residential neighborhoods is now facing a charge of fleeing from police. 
but it's what happened after his arrest that has an officer on, I'm putting in brackets here, paid administrative leave. Franklin Township police say the pursuit started May 1st on the city's southwest side. The suspect, 18-year-old Anthony Foster Jr., was originally stopped for no registration. Police say Foster did not pull over and fled, slamming on his brakes several times in an attempt to make the officer lose control and strike his vehicle from the rear. Once police stopped Foster's car and he was arrested, someone began filming the officers involved in his arrest. That video was posted on Twitter and went viral with more than 11,000 people retweeting the post. The cell phone video shows one officer holding the suspect's hands behind him while another officer comes around and kicks the suspect in the head. Columbus attorney Mark Collins confirmed that he represents Franklin Township officer Rob Wells and Wells was placed on paid administrative leave as a result of the video. Collins told 10 investigates his client was not aware that the suspect was in custody. My client did not know he was in handcuffs and in custody. He thought he was resisting. Well, don't you, shouldn't you like pay attention to that type of shit? You notice a guy's on the ground and you've got an officer on top of him, like physically on top of him. You can see from the video and you can see the guy's hands are behind him. And even though it's dark, it's not dark enough that you can't see that. So that explanation is all bullshit. Uh, so those were out of, where is that, Ohio, out of Oregon in Aloha. Uh, we have good news. Don't let it be said that I do not report good news. The state Supreme Court held oral arguments for one of their cases in a high school auditorium so that kids could watch the appellate process firsthand. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but the gist of it is there's a case involving uh, Lake Oswego. Oswego uh, and as part of that dispute, they went to this high school auditorium at Aloha High School Kids got to see that. They got to see an appeal involving a DUI case, and then they got to ask the justices questions afterwards. So that's pretty cool stuff. We do that in law school every now and then. Sometimes the North Carolina Court of Appeals will actually hold court within our moot courtroom. Uh, every now and again, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals for the Federal Fourth Circuit will do the same thing. So it's pretty nifty. Uh, out of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, two cops have been convicted for beating a 24-year-old black woman to death in what is a bona fide torture chamber, according to the DA. From that story, it says, quote, former Temple University police officers Aaron Wright and Marquise Robinson created a, subquote, degrading, diabolical torture chamber in their Germantown home where they beat Wright's girlfriend to death, a prosecutor said Wednesday. She was handcuffed, naked, Assistant District Attorney Chesley Lightseat said of Joyce Quiway, 24, who had been bound at her wrists and ankles as she lay face down on a weight bench in the kitchen of the home she shared with the men. Lightsey didn't cite a specific reason for the deadly beating, but she painted a picture of the two men as controlling and physically abusive of the women and girls who lived with them. They were regularly beaten for, subquote, not following the rules. Uh, basically, both of these guys were police officers with Temple University. Their defense attorneys tried to argue that them beating the shit out of her was not the reason she died, that they, she died of heart failure. Uh, the judge was not persuaded. This was a non-jury trial because judges are more inclined to acquit police officers. Uh, sentencing is set for July 20th. Uh, let's go ahead and throw in Puerto Rico here. So I didn't know where to put this in the state-by-state state news because Puerto Rico is not technically a state. It's the first time we've ever mentioned it, aside from the electricity dysfunction back in January. But it turns out their police are ridiculous as well. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Reeling from the sluggish hurricane recovery efforts and steep budget cuts to tackle the island's fiscal crisis, 
Gabriela Montez was one of several thousand Puerto Ricans who took to the streets in a May Day march on Tuesday to protest school closures and austerity measures that could result in significant pension cuts, higher college tuition costs, and reduced paid and vacation days. At least eight people were arrested, and a number of people were injured, including 15 police officers. At an afternoon news conference, the Puerto Rico governor, Ricardo Rosello, said authorities will investigate the incidents and did not rule out investigating any police actions. But according to the ACLU chapter in Puerto Rico, police officers disproportionately used violence against demonstrators, reporters, and legal observers, and then followed up with warrantless arrests of protesters in their homes and university dorms. Uh, Out of Tennessee, in Hamblin County, we have good news here. Don't let it be said. I don't report good news. Police managed to arrest an armed burglar without injuring him. From the story, it says, quote, a Hamblin County man is behind bars after he shot at sheriff's deputies who were investigating a burglary. On Thursday, May 3rd, Derek Logan Jefferson made a forcible entry into an Oak Lane residence in Hamblin County. Jefferson said he had a gun before the resident fired one shot into a wall and retreated from the home while calling 911. When officers arrived, they made contact with Jefferson inside an upstairs bedroom closet. The suspect then fired a shot at the officers and said he intended to kill them. The suspect was arrested after the firearm malfunctioned, attempting a second shot. Now, you'll be shocked, shocked to find out uh, that Derek Logan Jefferson is white. But it confirms that police can, in fact, arrest armed people without killing them if they so choose. Uh, Out of Knoxville, Tennessee, Freedom of Information Act emails released confirm that the Tennessee Department of Safety and Homeland Security, the Knoxville police, and several other agencies coordinated with the Nazis to arrest counter-protesters at a Nazi event. From the story, it says, quote, newly discovered emails show that law enforcement officials planning the security for a Tennessee college event featuring the traditionalist worker party were much more concerned about the anti-racism counter protesters than with the neo-Nazi organization responsible for deaths and injuries at rallies across the country. In one email, Tennessee Office of Homeland Security intelligence analyst Misty Phillips responded about neo-Nazi protesters attending the panel, writing that, quote, TWP is typically not the issue, but rather opposing groups, adding that the University of Tennessee Knoxville would provide a dozen officers for the event. Phillips also wrote that, quote, TWP is very good about communicating with the venue in which they plan to attend, despite the fact that the earlier February event was booked under the name of a local church and not the TWP. Uh, The head of the TWP announced that he had, quote, talked to the cops. So basically, I think if the Reds act up, they are going to get billy clubbed. And there's more stuff in the article from there. But the gist of it is when you take the emails and texts and forum posts as background, and then you compare that to actual video of the event, which is also included in the article, uh, Basically, this was all prearranged to have the counter-protesters roughed up and arrested. Uh, out of Texas and Texarkana, we have good news. That's three good news stories this week. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Uh, police got called about a vicious dog, and rather than just kill it, they whistled to it instead, and it turned out the dog was super friendly. From the story, it says, quote, Officer Travis Frost didn't expect to be making any friends on that call on Sunday, He was looking for a vicious dog, which had been called in by a concerned member of the community, according to a post on Facebook from the Texarkana, Texas Police Department. 
when Frost spotted the dog lying on a nearby front porch and bearing a close resemblance to a pit bull, he left the door to his patrol SUV open when he got out to approach the dog, subquote, so he could quickly jump back in if the dog came after him. Frost whistled at the dog, who trotted over, wagging his tail the entire time. Despite the dog's powerful muscular frame, it wasn't exactly the type of canine approach that strikes fear into police and animal control officers. So the dog licked the cop, even jumped into the car to go for a ride. There's a bunch of pictures. It's totally cute. They reunited the dog with his owner. Uh, And whoever called the police saying that all pit bulls are vicious is an asshole. So fuck that person. So good news out of Texas. Uh, In Virginia, the third story of its kind this week, uh, out of Alexandria, a police officer accidentally, in air quotes, fired his gun at a middle school. From the story, it says, police are investigating after a school resource officer, and sidebar, those are police, they're actual sworn law enforcement officers, we call them school resource officers so they don't sound as intimidating. Uh, A school resource officer accidentally fired his gun at a Northern Virginia middle school on Tuesday morning. Alexandria police say the officer was in his office at George Washington Middle School when the gun discharged. Authorities say the officer checked immediately to see if anyone was injured. No one was hurt, and the officer reported the incident to school staff and his supervisor. Alexandria Police Chief Michael Brown told ABC7 News that the bullet actually went through a wall inside the school, but he would not say whether that was the wall of a classroom because the investigation into what happened is still underway. Now, you're going to be shocked, I'm sure, to know that this particular middle school is majority-minority, with 59% of the students being non-white. Out of Washington in King County, that plainclothes detective who pulled a gun on a motorcyclist without cause uh, got a five-day unpaid suspension, even though he's been on paid vacation since last August. From the story, and let me pause. So this we covered this one in episode 25. So if you want to listen to our original coverage, go back to that. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, A plainclothes King County Sheriff's Office detective who pulled his gun on a motorcyclist during a traffic confrontation will be suspended for five days without pay. Sheriff Mitzi Johanknik, I I might be butchering her name, looks like Johanknik, announced on Monday. Uh, Alex Randall was recording on a helmet camera last August when he was approached by Detective Richard Rowe. Randall says the deputy pulled a gun on him while he was in traffic and that he feared for his life. He believes the deputy lied during the investigation and wants to see him fired. Now, also, I'm going to note, so he had on one of those GoPro things, and you see the officer has the gun out already when he walks up to him. So you go through the story, and the police argument is that Randall was somehow reaching to his front, and the officer thought he may have had a weapon. But Randall come, or Roe comes up to him from the side, so there's no way that you would have noticed that the guy was reaching. He would have had a reason to reach for anything at the time the guy had the gun drawn. So it's all a bunch of bullshit. Uh, so they had a press conference to announce the five-day suspension. Randall tried to go, and the sheriff's office told him he couldn't attend because it was only for the media. Prosecutors are not pressing any charges against the officer. Uh, And then Randall asked the sheriff to contact him to discuss what happened as part of the investigation, and no one contacted him, which I'm sure you're going to be shocked to find out. But the part that killed me is that, quote, Roe has been on paid administrative leave since August when the video surfaced. This guy got a paid vacation funded by taxpayers from August of 2017 until May of 2018, and he's going to have to go for five days without pay. How the fuck is that punishment? That's a sweet fucking deal. 
so that's out of King County in Seattle. Uh, I'm going to call this the This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things edition because this is so stupid. A police supervisor filed a complaint against one of his subordinates for successfully disarming a guy with an axe without using excessive force. I just don't get it. I'm going to read you the story, and then I'm going to explain why I don't understand it, because I actually watched the video footage. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, newly released video shows a dramatic police takedown and raises new questions about whether one officer acted courageously or went too far in his attempt to protect the public. Officer Nick Guzley now faces discipline for how he subdued a man armed with an ice axe. A complaint was filed about his failure to de-escalate the situation. However, other officers have said he made the best of a bad situation and no one ended up getting hurt. The Seattle police footage came from body cameras now being worn by officers and begins inside the REI on Yale Avenue. Security workers for the store called police to report that a man had just stolen an ice axe, then threatened one worker with it when she tried to stop him from leaving. Police tracked the man outside the store and called for backup when they too were threatened. In the video, the man clearly refuses to stop. He also won't follow commands, even though officers repeatedly order him to drop the ice axe. Officers followed the suspect for several blocks. At the same time, they also tried to clear the streets ahead as the man with the axe marched, yelling to people in his path to step away or get out of the way. It's at this point in the video that the suspect passes Officer Nick Guzley, who just pulled up in a patrol car. The suspect made his way into a narrow corridor. I'm going to sidebar here. They're doing construction. Uh, Just past the old Seattle Times building. It was there that police tried to press in, warning the man that he would be tased if he kept ignoring their orders. In response, the man could be seen on the video turning to face the officers while holding the axe over his head. Moments later, when the man turned back around, Officer Guzley rushed up from behind the man and made the tackle. Officer Guzley remains on patrol but is awaiting potential discipline. One of Guzley's own supervisors filed the complaint against him with Seattle's Office of Police Accountability. The investigation is for failure to de-escalate. Now, I watched the video. There is no tackle. What happens is the camera falls to the ground, but the officer runs up to the guy and wraps him in a bear hug with his arms around the guy's arms and then pushes him against one of the, um, what are they called, little tensa barriers, the orange things they use to mark off construction, pushes the guy up against that so another officer can come up and grab the axe. There's no tackle. There's no violence. No one is hurt. It's actually really good police work, and I don't fucking understand why a supervisor would file a complaint for that. It's so dumb. It's absolutely fucking stupid. So to uh, this particular officer, Officer Guzley, good job. I hope you're not disciplined for this because I looked at the footage, and you did a fantastic fucking job resolving this situation. Uh, So that's out of Seattle. So that is the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we do cover stuff in foreign countries. And this week, we got a doozy from the United Kingdom out of South Wales. So the South Wales police have produced a handful of documents in response to a Freedom of Information Act request about the use of facial recognition software. And we're going to give you the link. Uh, I think it's in Wired. Don't quote me on that. But we're going to give you the link in the show notes. But one of the things that stood out to me was a table 
of results. So what they're asking for is all information related to the automated facial recognition system. And specifically, they're looking at the number of positive AFR matches during the program's use and the number of false positives. And in the table, they're producing a list of these things. So, for example, there was a stereophonics concert. It had zero true positives and five false positives. There's a Wales versus South Africa rugby match. It had five true positives and 18 false positives. There was a Wales versus Australia rugby match where there were six true positives and 42 false positives. There was the UEFA Champions League final week where there was a combined total of 173 true positives and 2,297 false positives. That is astonishing. That means greater than 90% of all uses of this facial recognition technology ended up being false positives. That is mind-blowingly inaccurate. Uh, And this is stuff being used in England. I'm sure other jurisdictions in the United States are using it as well. And that's terrifying. I mean, you're basically taking body cams, which we need because police do shit and they try to cover it up. Uh, And you're grafting onto it this facial recognition technology to try and find people with active warrants. And in the process, you know, more than nine times out of ten, the people that it's identifying don't have anything in the system against them. So that's nuts. Uh, All right. So that's going to do it for our criminal justice fuckery for this week. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 suggested to us by Matthew Boyer on mandatory minimums. Thank you for staying with me through the break, y'all. This week, as part of our Law 140, we are talking about mandatory minimums suggested to us by Matthew Boyer, who's one of our Law 140 lovers. He helps keep this uh, podcast going with his financial contributions. Uh, So he and I talked on Facebook about this and and some other stuff, but his question is, uh, how is the legislative branch constitutionally able to tell the judicial branch how to rule on a case? That is his question. Now, I'm not going to get into the reasons why mandatory minimum laws exist because it's it's rage-inducing. Just know that this notion that Congress deliberates and weighs things and carefully ponders this stuff out uh, is total bullshit. It is absolute bullshit. And if you need an example, go to Google and type in Len bias, L-E-N space B-I-A-S. He is a basketball player who died of a cocaine overdose. And what you find is that it caused such a public uproar that Congress adopted a floor amendment with no committee hearings, no markup, no any kind of deliberation, uh, increasing mandatory minimum punishments for certain drug stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so stupid. And you go look through the history, and there's a long history of Congress doing a bunch of dumb shit when it comes to mandatory minimums. Now, when it comes to challenging mandatory minimums, there are really three main categories of attacks that get made. First is a separation of powers argument, the notion that the legislature can't direct the judiciary on how to sentence people. The second one is a due process argument, 
arguing that because the judge can't really weigh anything outside of the mandatory minimum, that your right to procedural due process has been violated. And then both the federal constitution and most states have prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment, arguing that mandatory minimums violate those. Now, I'm going to focus on the federal government here because every state has a different constitutional structure or rather, they can. I mean, what you're going to find is, as you do the research, uh, I started looking into it. Pretty much all this stuff is the same everywhere as far as the constitutionality of it. Uh, but in theory, a state could find that mandatory minimums for state crimes are unconstitutional within their own jurisdiction. That always remains a possibility. I don't know a state judiciary that has done that. I wasn't able to find one, but theoretically, it could happen. Uh, but basically what you're going to find as we go through this Law 140 is it is a crystalline example of why we desperately need reform-minded legislators because the judges aren't going to do our job for us. Uh, so the second rule of FISC, whenever you're considering a question like this, you have to start at the source, start with the source text. And there are three parts that matter here. First is Article 3 of the Constitution. Now, there's a bunch of stuff in Article 3, even though it's short. Uh, I'm going to read you the key pieces that matter, and I'm going to leave some of the other stuff out. Section 1 says, quote, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. And then Section 2 says the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority and a whole bunch of other stuff that's not important for this particular law 140. And then the next paragraph for that says that there's a case about ministers and consuls where it provides that the Supreme Court should have original jurisdiction. And then it says, quote, in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. So in this case, they're thinking about any territories we might have, piracy on the high seas, all of that other stuff. So that's Article 3. Those are the key points for Article 3, and they're going to matter here in a minute. You then have the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, part of our Bill of Rights, which says, quote, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation." And then you have the Eighth Amendment, which is super short. It's just one sentence. It says, quote, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So that is the source text for the background. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you cases 
on each of those three prongs that I just mentioned, separation of powers, due process, and cruel and unusual punishment. And I'm segmenting them that way because that's really how the courts decide them. So in terms of years, a lot of this stuff will overlap. But in terms of specific constitutional issues, cases tend to follow a lineage based on precedent. Now, with respect to separation of powers, there's nothing really there because it doesn't really apply in the federal context due to that phrase in Article 3 that says, quote, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. So when the Constitution was established, the judiciary was considered a very weak uh, branch. You know, there's this notion that they're co-equal branches of government, but none of that was really believed when the Constitution was written in 1787 and finally ratified in 1788. The Congress was the primary branch. It was the first among equals. That's why it's under Article One. The executive was important, but was pretty severely constrained. And then the judiciary was just kind of there. Uh, things like judicial review, that didn't exist until years in after Mar- um, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, it just wasn't really that big a deal. And in addition, you didn't have a lot of federal crimes. There were actually very few. Uh, You had treason, which is defined in the Constitution itself. But the rest of it tended to relate to military stuff. So desertion was a a big deal. Uh, Piracy on the high seas. There were very few things that the federal government prosecuted. It was mostly done by state courts. Uh, So the founders didn't really envision this vast prosecutorial apparatus that we have today hooked into notions of interstate commerce. Uh, And because of that, if you go through all the case law, there's an absurd, an absolutely absurd level of deference to Congress, uh, like over the top deference. And so, you know, if there's if any lawyers are listening to this and y'all have a case where the separation of powers issue has been addressed, let me know. Uh, But all my research, I couldn't find one. It's just kind of assumed that because that source text provides the limitations in it that Congress specifies, uh, there has been no ruling that under separation of powers, Congress can or cannot tell the judiciary what to do. It's just assumed that they can. So that leaves you the two other lines of attack, due process and cruel and unusual punishment. So let's talk about the due process piece first, because there are a string of cases I'm going to give you. There are four of them in all um, that kind of address this. So rather than look at it from the standpoint of has due process been violated, I'm going to flip that around to say what process is due, what is required for you to get when you are charged with a crime federally. And we're going to start in 1970 with the case N. Ray Winship. Now, we've talked about this case twice before uh, in episode 11 and in episode 23. I mentioned it. And it's one of those really fundamental cases because it provides uh, that in order to be convicted of a crime, the government has to prove each element of that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Go back to those earlier podcasts. Uh, But the gist of it is this involved a kid being prosecuted and for juvenile offenses, there was a lower standard of proof. And what the court said was, if you can theoretically be put in jail, uh, you have to use the reasonable doubt standard proof beyond a reasonable doubt of each element of each crime. Now, what is an element? The gist of it is states define that, you know, they decide what the elements for their crimes are or in the federal context there's actual codification of the elements of the offense. So fast forward from there 
about 16 years. And, and let me pause when I say in Ray Winship was a five to three decision. Uh, then all the other cases that I talk about, every single one of them has been a five to four decision. These are very closely fought cases that have split the court every which way from Sunday. Uh, and it's been like that for decades. So it's not even a recent phenomenon. These very close decisions have been going on for a while. So the next case that matters as far as the due process analysis goes, is the case of McMillan versus Pennsylvania, which was in 1986. It's another five to four decision. And McMillan involved a statute that was called the Mandatory Minimum Sentencing Act. And what that statute provided was that certain felonies were subject to a mandatory minimum sentence of five years if the sentencing judge, uh, after their trial verdict has been entered by the jury, uh, concludes by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant visibly possessed a firearm. Now, the people in this particular case argue that that's not appropriate because in in Ray Winship, you have to prove elements beyond a reasonable doubt. They argued that for purposes of sentencing, the preponderance of the evidence standard should not apply because it would violate in Ray Winship. And the Supreme Court rejected that by that five to four decision. What they said was that a state could treat visible possession of a firearm as a sentencing consideration rather than an element of the offense. So they spent a lot of time and effort addressing that particular piece. And one of the key points that the Supreme Court notes is that even though it's a mandatory minimum sentence, that mandatory minimum falls within the range of possible punishments that the judge could have levied anyway, regardless of whether or not there was a firearm. So if you were to have a sentencing range, that five years was within the sentencing range. And it just so happened that if there was a firearm, the floor of that sentencing range changed. So that had to be at least five years. And a key key quote from that opinion says, quote, the Pennsylvania legislature did not change the definition of any existing offense with this particular act. It simply took one factor that has always been considered by sentencing courts to bear on punishment and dictated the precise weight to be given to that factor. Now, that's going to matter later on. The particular facts in McMillan were that the sentence for the mandatory minimum was within the range of what was already permissible. Now, the next major case is Apprendi versus New Jersey. We talked about that one before as well. Go back to episode two. So I'm not going to rehash all of that one. But essentially, in Apprendi, that involved a case where the sentence ended up being above the statutory maximum. And what the court held was that if you're going to have that type of scenario where the punishment is above the statutory maximum, all of the facts that are required to find that holding, other than prior convictions, all other facts that are required to get you there have to be proved to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So in McMillan, the sentence is already within the statutory range of punishment. In Apprendi, we're now going above that range. And what the court said is if that's going to be the case, a jury has to find all requisite facts. So then go to 2002, the case of Harris versus United States. This is a five to four decision again. And in this case, it involves William Harris, who was selling illegal narcotics out of his pawn shop. And he had an unconcealed pistol at his side. He kept it on the desk so that people would know, hey, I got a gun. Don't fuck with me. 
Well, he violated the law, basically saying that because he was engaged in drug trafficking, that was one crime. But then in addition, because of the fact that he had a firearm brandished, the mandatory minimum is seven years. So he basically makes the argument that McMillan has been essentially overturned by Apprendi. That is the argument that he makes to the Supreme Court. You had the situation with the Pennsylvania mandatory minimums. You then said that under Apprendi, a jury has to consider all factors beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, what, what is the situation here? Is McMillan still good law? And what the Supreme Court says is that you're dealing with two different types of sentences. Because in McMillan, the sentence fell within the pre-existing range. In Apprendi, you went above the statutory max. And a key quote from that case is, quote, read together, McMillan and Apprendi mean that those facts setting the outer limits of a sentence and of the judicial power to impose it are the elements of the crime for the purposes of the constitutional analysis. Within the range authorized by the jury's verdict, however, the political system may channel judicial discretion and rely upon judicial expertise by requiring defendants to serve minimum terms after judges make certain factual findings. It is critical not to abandon that understanding. Legislatures and their constituents have relied upon our holding in McMillan to exercise control over sentencing through dozens of statutes like the one the court approved in that case. So basically, you know, mandatory minimums are okay from a due process standpoint, because the court defers to the legislature and the legislature sets this max outer bounds in terms of a minimum punishment and a maximum punishment for any given offense. So the due process argument doesn't work. So let's take a different look at the Eighth Amendment. Is that stuff cruel and unusual? And keep in mind, these cases tend to overlap the due process cases. But what you find is a court that is willing to recognize when something is wildly out of whack and then backtracks like a motherfucker. Um, so start out in 1983, a case called Solem versus Helm, which is a five to four decision. It's out of North Dakota. And a guy was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for writing a bad check. He had three prior convictions for nonviolent offenses and under North Dakota's habitual offender statute, getting life without parole was a possibility if you got convicted again. And in that case, the Supreme Court threw that out. They said that that was cruel and unusual. And what they said in their holding was, quote, a criminal sentence must be proportionate to the crime for which the defendant has been convicted. Now, what does proportionate mean? Well, they came up with a three-part proportionality analysis. Uh, what they said was the sentencing court, quote, must consider the gravity of the offense and harshness of the penalty. They must compare the sentences imposed on other criminals in the same jurisdiction to determine if more serious crimes are subject to the same or lesser penalties. And they must compare the sentences imposed for commission of the same crime in other jurisdictions. Now, that seems pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty unusual. You know, you, if you went through, you know, high school civics, you might realize that we don't have that and wonder why. Uh, and the reason why is that the Supreme Court started backing away at their first opportunity. So in 1991, there was a case called Harmelin versus Michigan, where this time 
a guy got a mandatory life sentence without parole for his very first offense of possessing crack cocaine. And he argued that it was cruel and unusual. Now, the crazy part of it, there's a bunch of crazy parts in the ruling in this case. But one of the craziest was that it was a 5-4 decision, and the five-justice majority basically decided that the cruel portion of the Eighth Amendment no longer exists, that it's okay for a punishment to be cruel as long as it is not also unusual. They read the phrase cruel and unusual as linking those two words together as opposed to potentially cruel or unusual. Uh, So what the court says in part four, which is the only part where there's actually all five justices agree, uh, Scalia writes, quote, the petitioner claims that his sentence violates the Eighth Amendment for a reason in addition to its alleged disproportionality. He argues that it is cruel and unusual to impose a mandatory sentence of such severity without any consideration of so-called mitigating factors, such as, in his case, the fact that he had no prior convictions. He apparently contends that the Eighth Amendment requires Michigan to create a sentencing scheme whereby life in prison without the possibility of parole is simply the most severe of a range of available penalties that the sentencer may impose after hearing evidence in mitigation and aggravation. As our earlier discussion should make clear, this claim has no support in the text and history of the Eighth Amendment. Severe, mandatory penalties may be cruel, but they are not unusual in the constitutional sense, having been employed in various forms throughout our nation's history. As noted earlier, mandatory death sentences abounded in our first penal code. They were also common in the several states, both at the time of the founding and throughout the 19th century. There can be no serious contention, then, that a sentence which is not otherwise cruel and unusual becomes so simply because it is mandatory. So that's the part that all five justices agreed on. Now, where it gets messed up, and this mess up has implications later on, is that they split among that five justice majority on how to apply the solemn case. So Justice Scalia and Rehnquist concluded that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition uh, only addresses the form of the penalty, not the severity of it. And so they would have overruled Solemn. Uh, and then Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter disagreed, arguing that there's a proportionality requirement still, that it's still good law, uh, but they narrowly interpreted it to say that you didn't have to really do all those comparative analyses that the court talked about. Uh, and Kennedy writes, quote, intra-jurisdictional and inter-jurisdictional analyses are appropriate only in the rare case in which a threshold comparison of the crime committed and the sentence imposed leads to an inference of gross disproportionality. The proper role for comparative analysis of sentences is to validate an initial judgment that a sentence is grossly disproportionate to the crime. Uh, He continues, quote, The Eighth Amendment does not require strict proportionality between crime and sentence. Rather, it forbids only extreme sentences that are grossly disproportionate to the crime. Uh, It's all a bunch of gobbledygook, essentially. So you have the remaining justices would have held that the life sentence was unconstitutionally disproportionate under any interpretation. So you have four justices saying Solemn is still totally good law plus three justices who say it's good law, but under this narrow instance, 
so what happens is you then have a plurality of a majority, a sub-plurality, if you will. Uh, in the case Ewing versus California in 2003, this is another five to four decision. And this one ends up upholding California's three strikes law. Uh, so as background, Gary Ewing in uh, 2000 was arrested for stealing golf clubs. So he stole three golf clubs, total value of roughly uh, $1,200, give or take. It's a lot of money, but not, you know, a, a bazillion dollars. Um, well, he's also got a lot of priors. He was also on probation for a uh, prior term for burglary. So under California's three strikes laws, given his constant recidivism, plus being on probation, another felony conviction would have required a sentence of 25 years to life. So he was charged, he was convicted, he was given the life sentence. Uh, at sentencing, he asked the judge to treat the conviction as a misdemeanor so he wouldn't go away for life over $1,200 worth of golf clubs, uh, and the judge said no. So he appealed up to the Supreme Court, and a five-justice majority held that the sentence was valid. It was constitutional. You had a three-justice plurality there applying the Kennedy's narrow proportionality interpretation. So basically what he had just done in the Harmelin v. Michigan decision, so the part where it was him and uh, O'Connor and Souter disagreeing with Scalia and Rehnquist, they then took that narrow proportionality interpretation and applied it here. So in this case, now Souter's in the minority. He's now part of the dissenting group. Chief Justice Rehnquist is no longer joined with Scalia. He joins Kennedy and O'Connor to uphold the prior precedent, this narrow proportionality precedent. And then now Clarence Thomas is on the bench and joins with Scalia to say that it shouldn't apply. Uh, it, it's, this, it's this motley mess of mess. Uh, so you have five justices saying uphold the law. Out of those, Rehnquist, O'Connor, and Kennedy are applying this narrow proportionality test. Scalia and Thomas are saying there is no proportionality test in the Eighth Amendment at all. And then you have four justices in the minority saying that it should be overturned uh, regardless of what particular interpretation you use, whether it's narrow interpretation of proportionality or broader interpretation of proportionality. So the weird part about it is that you have seven justices at that time that believe the Eighth Amendment has some sort of proportionality requirement when it comes to mandatory sentencing. But you don't actually have any idea whether or not the solemn case is still like valid, uh, whether it's the correct standard, because only three of the nine justices said that it was. Uh, it's just a, it's a bizarre mess. So long story short is this. When it comes to mandatory minimums, pretty much everything the court has considered uh, has always upheld them. You know, there is no separation of powers argument because of the structure of the Constitution. Uh, when it comes to due process, because the mandatory minimum is within the range of statutory punishments, it doesn't matter. And it's not cruel or unusual, or cruel and unusual, rather, because of how the court has interpreted it over time. Uh, now, there is occasional bright spots, sort of. Uh, so if you look at the case of Dean versus United States, this was a 2017 case where I, I'm not going to get into the details. You'll have to Google it because it's not really applicable here. But essentially, the court still upheld mandatory minimums, uh, but said that a sentencing judge could look at the mandatory minimums to determine how to sentence other non-mandatory minimum crimes. 
uh, basically you had a guy facing an obscene sentence for, that is mandatory minimum related. So he said to the judge, hey, judge, give me one day sentences for all the other crimes I've been convicted of to minimize how long I'm going to be in jail. And the judge did that. Uh, it's it's a very equally stupid case, in my opinion, because what the hell is the purpose of having sentencing guidelines if you don't follow them? Uh, but, you know, it's a win for people who are opposed to mandatory minimums. So, yay. So check that out. But the gist of it is, as far as constitutionality goes, it's constitutional. It's repeatedly been upheld as constitutional, even though they suck. Uh, and what you're going to find is that even though state legislatures and state judiciaries could theoretically take a different approach, uh, generally they don't. They kind of took things the same way. So, Matthew, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. I hope I adequately answered it for you. And, folks, with that, that is going to conclude this episode of Fisca Mall, our first episode of season two. If you've listened this far, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, please give us a five star rating on iTunes or leave us a written review or, you know, Apple podcast, Stitcher, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Uh, tell folks about us. Let us know how we're doing. Let them know that they should be listening to us. Uh, and on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, I hope all of you have a fantastic week ahead. And I will talk to you on Thursday when we have a special bonus pod dropping. Take care.